Ayman al-Zawari, Emir of Al-Qaeda, is no more. He was reportedly enjoying his morning tea on the balcony of what he thought was a safe house in one of Kabul's more upscale neighborhoods when two missiles fired by the CAA from a Hellfire drone ended his life almost 21 years after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, and almost one year after the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and capitulation to the Taliban. This raises many questions. I'm going to pose some of them to Bill Roggio and Brad Bowman. Bill, of course, is a senior fellow at FDD and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. Brad serves as senior director of FDD's Center on Military and Political Power. You can find more on both at FDD.org. I'm Cliff May. You can also find more about me on the FDD website. But for now, just stay with us for a conversation about Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, Afghanistan, jihadism, and more here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. All right, let's let's tell the story unhurriedly. I'm not due for cocktails for at least another hour. Bill, for those who may have fallen off the turnip truck yesterday, who was Ayman al-Zawari, and what's his background? How did, how did he become a big shot in the jihad business? Uh, hello, Cliff. And I, I can tell you what, it's been a busy couple of days. I've been due for cocktails like yesterday, but probably won't get. If you were anywhere in the neighborhood, I would <laughs> buy you a cocktail or more if I could. Yeah, I'm probably going to have to save that for a couple more days. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right. I owe you one. <laughs> I owe you a couple. But um, yeah, Zawahiri. <laughs> Been in the jihad for four decades now. He was one of the co-founders of Al-Qaeda with Osama bin Laden and uh, several other notorious figures. Before he joined Al-Qaeda, he was the leader of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, radical, obviously, Egyptian jihadist group. He and bin Laden went to Afghanistan in the mid to late 1980s to wage jihad against the Soviet Union. They helped organize the foreign fighters, along with a Pakistani known as Abdullah Azam. Long story short, what they put together, how they organized and, and were able to train and recruit, categorize all of these fighters, that became, they, they came up with the idea of creating Al-Qaeda, right? And Al-Qaeda, of course, means the base. They wanted to be the base of jihad. They wanted to serve as the vanguard of the jihad. Fast forward. Al-Qaeda is created. He's, again, one of the signatories. Al-Qaeda in the 1990s, uh, dare I say, explodes on the scene. We have the, the first World Trade Center bombing. Al-Qaeda is involved with... 1993, 1993. that was, yes, right? correct. Right. Then we... Um, uh, they're bouncing around from Afghanistan to, to Sudan, back to Afghanistan... Uh, we have the 1998 uh, bombing, embassy bombings with, uh, in Kenya. Right, Kenya and Tanzania, exactly. right. The Zawahiri was actually indicted for, for that. He was among those indicted along with Saif, Saif mm. al his likely successor, Osama bin Other. Talk about him more, yeah. Right, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. The, you know, the USS Cole. Then, you know, we get 9-11. On 9-11, Zawahiri was Osama bin Laden's deputy. Um, so, you know, put this in perspective. At this point in time, Zawahiri is already on well, 9-11. I mean, technically three decades in jihad, but time-wise, two decades, right? Uh, right. He, he right. serves as bin Laden's deputy for a, 10 years after 9-11, after bin Laden's killed uh, in May 2011 in a special operations raid by Navy SEALs and the CIA in Abbottabad in Pakistan. Zawahiri takes control. He takes the helm of al-Qaeda. Um, so here he also played a very important, uh, I, look, I see a lot of analysis of, of 
Al-Qaeda and Zawahiri, and he's dismissed as a crank, as unimportant. Um, I disagree with a lot of those that analysis. I think he he helped Al-Qaeda take the next step in its evolution. He, he was very uh, influential in creating Al-Qaeda's branches, or what are more often known as the affiliates. He pushed this in Somalia with, uh, with uh, Al-Shabaab, which is Al-Qaeda's branch in East Africa. He played an integral role in creating Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, that's North Africa. And particularly, he was the one that inspired the creation of Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent as well. He held Al-Qaeda mm-hmm. together through some very turbulent times with the breakup between um, with the Islamic State. There was always tensions there. I always wonder, what it, even Osama bin Laden been able to keep the Islamic State in the fold. But that was a major blow to Al-Qaeda. But the rest of the affiliates stayed together. And um, he Zawahiri deserves some credit for that. Uh, he's, you know, look, one yep. $25 million reward for him from the U.S. government. One of the most hunted men on the planet. Uh, he's survived, you know, a 20 plus year manhunt for him, um, an intensive manhunt. And, you know, another narrative that I hear about, you know, look, now Al-Qaeda's, all their old leaders are dead and Al-Qaeda is irrelevant because of this. Well, it took it only took us no. 21 years to kill him after 9-11. And I also would say this. Name me a government official or a general, like saying vice president, a vice president or a cabinet official or a top general who was, you know, working on September 11th, 2001, um, who's still in the game today for the United States. Uh, that's a good question. I, and what occurs to me, of course, is. Uh, Probably Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping have uh, probably been in, in high up in this business for 20 years and learning their their trade. That's very you could have written his uh, CV if he had been looking for another job, Bill. That's really. But there, actually, there's one more point I want to make about him, and I'll tell you why. And Brad, you tell me if you, you're younger, so you may not remember this. But after 9/11, I remember having debates, including one at the Italian embassy with a bunch of other think tank people, and it was kind of fashionable at that point to say. You know, most of these terrorists, well, they're 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 really young men, rarely were they women, and, and they tend to be from like poor backgrounds and they, they don't have employment opportunities, the poor dears. And so the remedy is being less judgmental and not using brute force, maybe providing more foreign aid. And the reason I bring this up is because Zawari, just a couple more things about him. His his father was a pharmacology professor, his uncle had been grand imam of Al-Azhar. I've been there. It's a thousand-year-old university in Egypt, the center of Islamic learning, Sunni Islamic learning, as I should say, in the world. His mother's father was president of Cairo University. Uh, He became a a physician and a surgeon. He was known as a brilliant student. Um, He, Though he got early on, as I understand it, he got into reading what I think we can now call, we back in 20 years ago, this you couldn't, Islamist literature, particularly Said Qutb, who's an, also an Egyptian Islamic thinker who saw the world starkly divided between the believers and the infidels, and very influential in terms of the Muslim Brotherhood. And Said Qutb, by the way, was eventually hanged in, in Egypt. I won't go on except to say, this was not some guy who didn't have opportunities. This was some guy who, he was, by the way, he was involved in the 1981 assassination of President Anwar Sadat, who dared to make peace with Israel. That assassination not only killed Sadat, but it showed others, this is what happens if you make peace with the infidels. Brad, you do you do remember some of this, right? You weren't. I do, yeah. No, you and I have talked before about our, our memories from that day, and and uh, shortly thereafter, after the attacks of September 11, 2001, I was privileged as an active duty army officer to go spend two years full time in graduate school. And one of my top research questions for those two full time years in graduate school uh, was, who are these people that uh, just murdered our citizens? Who were they? And what were their motives? And 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 I dug as deep as a, anyone could dig into those issues. And I remember distinctly uh, that there was a whole bunch of supposed scholarship at the time that was putting forth this proposition that that you know uh, this is a function of poverty. Uh, that that if we could just go and give more development funding and just improve the economies and have more ec- equitable distribution of wealth 
that we can get after this Islamist terrorist threat. And of course, I'm an al-Zawahiri, you know, the number two in the whole organization from the beginning, as Bill just beautifully laid out. I mean, comes from an upper middle class, wealthy background. Bin Laden's family was wealthy, as Bill knows better than Very me. Very well. Uh, and, and, and facts were just not supporting this hypothesis, but it kind of stuck around because it fit the existing agenda of a lot of people who wanted to push development programs. Now, I'm a big fan of development, uh, properly designed development programs, but let's not twist facts to support what we want to do. And, and we just, I, I think there are a lot of folks in the West who just didn't want to consider the fact that maybe, just maybe, there are people that hate our freedom and hate who we are and want to kill us regardless of how much or little money they have. By the way, that, that, that's one, one other thing people would say, as I'm sure you know, is that, well, they dislike us because we've offended them because of our policies. Because, but if you read Saeed Khatab, you know they dislike us because we are infidels. We are in. He spent a lot of time in the U.S. Cliff, as you know. He decided Kutub did, and he, yes. he came to despise us in part based on his time here. <laughs> and if if I make a quick point, not only yeah, were they people, men of means, Zawahiri, Bin Laden, we could go down the list. Saif Al Adel was a, a senior military officer. Abu Muhammad Al like I could go on and on. Um, but they walked away from money, and they lived very austere lives. Um, right. In right. the mountains, hunted. I mean, look, hunted for for decades, um, living in caves and huts, shifting homes every day. That is not the life of luxury. It just shows that they were actual true believers. That they were fanatic. Whatever we think of them, like personally, I despise them and um, would be happy to end their lives myself. Yeah. But you have to respect their commitment to their cause. They're, they were committed. They were very committed because they are true believers in that regard. They were not material girls. No, no, they were. They, and they were men and they were men of faith. You have to say that. And you have to deal with the complexity that suggests, which a lot of people find very uncomfortable because a lot of people think, well, religion, that means peace. That means love. It can it sometimes does. It sometimes doesn't. It's not so simple. And if it's one thing we want to get across in these podcasts, a lot of things are not so simple. Okay, so over these past years, well, and I'm not sure how much you know about this, Bill, where has uh, Wari been living? I know, and I mean, I look, and what are the conditions, moreover? Like, I understand he's been living in, you know, Pakistan's northwest, Ziristan region, but I mean, is he living in a cage? Is he living in an Airbnb? Is it a motel sick? I mean, what kind of, do we have any idea how he's been living over these years, or do we really just not know? How rough or comfortable? We have some idea, especially early on. They were in the remote tribal areas of Pakistan. I recall a report from 2005, six, one of the first drone strikes of the U S conducted in, in Pakistan wasn't even in Waziristan. It was in a, a district or a tribal area known as Bajor. Um, there were seven tribal agencies and, um, he was with a, uh, a Taliban leader, a Pakistani Taliban leader at the time, apparently it was a narrow miss. It was a, the, the strike hit a, a, a madrasa that he was supposed to be going to. I, I'm at times, I'm sure went particularly after the battle of Tora Bora and, and other points, he was very likely on the run at, you know, living in caves, but most of the time, very likely living in safe houses in Pakistan, sheltered by people like, uh, you know, Fakir Muhammad. Uh, that's the the Pakistani Taliban leader that he was with, or um, the, the Haqqani network, Siraj Haqqani's network uh, uh, would um, provide him shelter. But as we saw, um, what we know, then he kind of went dark. We saw we lost, we saw very little reporting. We know Bin Laden was killed in an upscale neighborhood in Abbottabad in um, northwestern Pakistan, basically the west point of Pakistan but a closed city that is very closely monitored by the Pakistani military and, and its intelligence services. But reporting on Zawahiri's whereabouts dried up up until about a point in 2020 where uh, I believe it was General McKenzie, then the commander of U.S. Central Command, said that he, it's very likely they believe that bin Laden or I'm sorry, that Zawahiri was living in eastern Afghanistan. So th this is the time. When during and after Trump, President Trump uh, signed that that awful deal with the Taliban, that he that the U.S. military thought he felt confident enough to go back in Afghanistan. If he is in Afghanistan, he's very likely in villages, probably wasn't, you know, living in a nice cushy mansion like he was where we killed him um, in Kabul. But very likely um, and, and very likely all the time 
moving around, if not like not every day, not every week, but very likely moving, you know, every couple of weeks, every, you know, couple of months in order to keep his location secure. It's, you know, it's good to move, but also sometimes moving can be an indicator that someone important is around as well. So the the Taliban and Al-Qaeda got very good at masking at that over the time. Um, Usually when we get them, we find out um, about them from monitoring either family members or we pick up intelligence on a courier. That's how we got bin Laden. That's how we got the uh, uh, Asim Umar, who was the former head of Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. Um, that's a, um, or again, like with Zawahiri, the report, at least this is what the initial reporting says. This stuff changes over time was that they were tracking some of his family members moving to Kabul. And that gave, that was a tip off. But as we know, at the, at the end of his life, he was at a very, um, nice mansion in a posh part of, uh, of Kabul. This was an area, uh, that where very close to the U S and British embassies, upscale neighborhood. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, his, his last days, he was, he was living pretty well. Apparently he liked to look at the sunrise and sunset on the balcony. And he got a surprise very early, um, that morning on last Sunday. Uh, you know, I'm We mentioned the tribal areas and I want to make this clear to people because that phrase is often used without explaining it. Cause it's not like, you know, you go to New Mexico and there's a reservation and maybe you visit and buy some artifacts or there's gambling. It's not like that. It's, um, this is a part of Pakistan where the government, I would say, has limited control, limited enforcement. And, um, and if you don't think I'm right, you, you tell me. But I remember being there many years ago. I was, in, I was actually motorcycling through the Khyber Pass, which Malcolm Forbes was a famous and eccentric publisher at that time. And Malcolm wanted to get off the road, off the main road in the Khyber Pass, and go into some of these tribal areas. And we had an, a military escort. And I remember this very distinctly, the military escort saying, well, um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Forbes, you can go in there, um, but understand I have essentially no authority in there once you do. Now, the various tribal leaders may be very pleased to see you, and they may be very hospitable, and they will slaughter a lamb uh, to celebrate your arrival, and you will have a wonderful dinner. But they also may decide to slaughter you, and then you will be served for dinner. And there's really very little I could do about that if that were to happen. So Malcolm decided not to get off the road after all, based on that advice. <laughs> sound advice to take. I, I'll, my my <laughs> one brush with almost going to the tribal areas back in 2007, um, very early on in my career when I was por- reporting on what was happening there, the uh, commander of the Frontier Corps he uh, contacted me, invited me to basically embed with the Pakistani military. And I'm trying to work it mm. out at this time. I'm on my own it's before my FTD mm. days. And I'm like, you know, finally, I'm saying to him, look, I, and the, the insurgency was raging at that point. Um, the the Tal- Al Qaeda controlled large and the Taliban controlled large areas of the Taliban. The Taliban was dancing on on Islamabad, but he wanted to show that things were OK. And, and then he's at some point when I'm asking him, like, look, I need security because the ISI, not, they're not a fan, Pakistan's inner service intelligence directorate. That's their, um, their basically their military intelligence branch, very powerful, uh, very powerful, uh, entity, basically the state behind the state in Pakistan. They, they're not fans of mine. So I was trying to work out, like, look, you need to give me a military escort from the airport. I, you know, I just, and he started mocking me. And then next thing you know, about a couple of days later, uh, a Tal- Taliban suicide bomber blew up the Continental Hotel in Peshawar, where I would have met him. And I get mm. an email from him saying, Bill, maybe it's not a good idea for you to come out right now. And I never got another invite, but I would have got the helicopter tour of uh, of Waziristan, which would have been pretty cool. And uh, But uh, some of my colleagues were screaming at me for even considering it. Considering it. It's too bad you didn't. That would have been a great slideshow to show guests and in-laws. If I made it out, you know, and I look back on that <laughs> now and say, out, I can't course. believe I flirted yeah, yeah. with that idea. I've done some crazy things, but that one might have been my craziest idea of them all. Um, pure speculation, both of you, Brad, you start. Why do you do you think that Zawari moved to Kabul because he wanted a more comfortable life? I mean, the guy's 71. Maybe he thinks I'm going to kick back in a nice neighborhood. I want to walk to Moby Dick's for chicken kebab. Or is he run? Is he think that he can? This is going to be now because it's Taliban rule. This is where Al Qaeda headquarters is going to be. The Americans wouldn't dare do anything about it. Or does he want to just make some video? I mean, 
just speculate on why he decided to make this move. He must have asked for it, and we're going to get to who he asked about it in a second, um, and whether or not that was a hard decision um, for for well, for the for the for the head of the Hakani network to make. We'll have to explain who the Hakani. Anyhow, just give us your thoughts on his moving back, Brad, and then and then Bill, you may want to give your thoughts too. Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. It's difficult to know his precise reasoning, but I think it's safe to say that he thought it would be safe in Kabul, which I think speaks volumes, right? Mm. So whether he was in the federally administered tribal areas of Pakistan or whether he was in Eastern Afghanistan, he felt that he would be safe and maybe he felt that he would be able to operate from Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan ruled by the Taliban. So that's not surprising to Bill and the Long War Journal folks who've been documenting this for years. But the, to drive home the, the, the point that may be obvious to some is that you know this just underscores for me and I think for, for all of us the relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. I mean, we know that, um, as as Bill and Tom have documented through the years, that the Taliban provided safe haven to Al-Qaeda before 9-11, that they remain attached at the hip for a full 20 years there, and they never broke, even though they committed to doing so and laughably in, in the agreement with the Trump administration in 2020. Uh, and, you know, he felt like uh, that he could go right there. I mean, literally a stone's throw from where I was based at New Cobble Compound in 2010, right, as Bill said, not too far from the U.S. Embassy, right in or near a home that was owned by relatives of Taliban leaders. Uh, and so I think it really speaks to his perception of al-Qaeda's relationship with uh, the, the Taliban. And that should be a deep concern to listeners, I think, because it basically puts us more or less back in the same situation we were on September 10th, 2001, where you have Taliban-controlled Afghanistan that is a safe haven for al-Qaeda. Now, the Biden administration pushed back. Safe haven? What are you talking about? We just did a drone strike. Right. As Bill has said, the first drone strike in 11 months. Who else has come to Afghanistan? What have they been doing? And what do we not know because we're not there? Right, right. right. And do you know, let me just throw this in, how, what do we guess? I get anything about how we knew or how the CIA knew he was there. Probably, probably signals intelligence rather than human intelligence would be my guess. Is that what you would say? Bill, I've been reading that it was because of potentially the movement of his family, which uh, presumably could have been picked up for all forms of intelligence. But Bill, Bill what, have, what have you been seeing? Yeah, that's that's exactly right, Brad. That's what I've heard. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm certain once they started tracking the family, that then this is where signals, satellite, you know, intelligence mm. starts working through. I've even seen a report of CIA on the ground in Afghanistan. That doesn't mean American CIA. I thought it was high, a highly irresponsible. You don't want to cue in the Taliban that you might have assets on the ground. The, this administration and just like the Trump administration, the Obama administration are so eager to tout their, their successes that they blab a little bit more. But um, to the point of, um, mm. Why was Zawahiri there? I, I mm. couldn't agree with Brad more. Um, mm. I'm going to add one thing that I believe is involved in this. And this was in the latest uh, report from the United Nations Analytical Support and Sanctions Monitoring Team. Excellent product. I highly recommend if you should, I think, three reports a year on Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And, you know, this should be mandatory reading if you're interested in these topics. But here's, I'm going to quote directly um, from the report um, here. And it says, quote, Al-Qaeda's leadership reportedly plays an advisory role with the Taliban and the groups remain close. Well, end quote. So you have Al-Qaeda's top leader in Kabul. The Taliban's top leadership are based in Kabul. And the UN is telling us that the Al-Qaeda is providing advice. So I can't help but assume. um, And and the UN is not exactly known for its hawkish position, shall we say, right, Bill? (laughs) So... uh, yeah, Edmund Fitton Brown, who uh, who runs this, is a he's a friend of mine. I had lunch, a breakfast with him in New York uh, last week, and no, he's no hawk, but he, you know, he's no, uh, or he's no screaming, you know, but he's certainly no, uh, uh, you know, he's uh, granola eating, tree hugging. Yes, he, he's cutting it right down maybe, the middle. Maybe novel concept. Maybe he follows the facts where they lead. It, maybe he's actually doing right. That. And what and when you sit and talk right? with him, and when you read the reporting, this is as solid as it gets. And to me, that stuck out to me even before the strike on Zawahiri. I'm saying saying to myself, wow, in order for them to be doing this, 
you know, sure, maybe they're talking in Nangahar and Kandahar or some other remote province, but the place to be would be Kabul. And then lo and behold, uh, you know, and th- this report, by the way, was great. It was issued on July 19th, mm. just less than two weeks. It was everything mm. in it just about about Al-Qaeda and the, the Taliban and the relationship was proven true. And and there's one other wrinkle here um, in terms of, of the Taliban. The house was specifically owned by someone who described um, as as a member or a senior official in what's called the Haqqani Network. Uh, you know a lot about it, Bill, but let me start by saying it's not a Muslim version of the Disney Network. Am I right about that? That is correct. Okay, maybe explain what the what this what this wing of the Taliban, the Haqqani, or how would you describe it? Is it a wing of the Taliban, or is it something? Yeah, like- a wing, a faction, a, a, a subgroup. Um, the Tal- you know, the Taliban is made up of different factions. The Haqqanis are based in eastern Afghanistan as well as across the border in north and south Waziristan. Um, and other areas of, of, uh, Pakistan. It was founded by Jalaluddin Haqqani, the Mujahideen fighter who fought the Soviets in the 1980s. And then he became a member of the Taliban. Um, in the 1990s, he was held a senior ministerial position with the Taliban. Um, they became very, very close with Al Qaeda that the Haqqanis are a um, they, they just share the, the Taliban worldview. They sheltered bin Laden's family. Um, both before and after 9-11. Uh, Jalaluddin died, I want to say it was in 2017 or 18, but his son, Sirajuddin Haqqani, um, it's funny, I, m- I remember reporting on him in, I want to say around 2007, when the U.S. first issued a reward for him. And it was about the U.S. military uh, noted who he was, and there was about, I think it was like a fifty or $100,000 mm. reward put out for him. Today, the reward is, t- is, I believe, it's either $10 million or $25 million. Um, today, he's he's the man who, who um, brought the Haqqani network uh, to the next level. The U.S. targeted him and his family in numerous drone strikes in, in Pakistan's tribal areas for, during the campaign from 2005 to 2018, when I reported the last strike there. And he um, he's responsible for bringing, um, bringing the Taliban back together after the embarrassment with hiding Mullah Omar's death for um, two years. I think he, I, he was, he and his father played an instrumental role in doing this and his profile just grew. Um, they were responsible for all the heinous attacks in and around Kabul, attacks on U.S. bases in Eastern Afghanistan. Um, you know, again, closely allied with Al Qaeda, Sirajun Khani. It's said that one of his deputies, I've heard that his chief of staff owned this house. And just so you think that her Sirajun Khani isn't your run of uh, the mill Taliban leader. He is currently one of two deputy emirs and is thought to be the next successor to the Taliban. It's possible it might go to Mullah Yaqub, um, as well as the Taliban's interior minister and is probably the most powerful position within the Afghan government. Oh, and by the way, U.S. sources were telling me in the 2000, late 2000, early 2010s um, that Sirajuddin Haqqani was also at one point on al-Qaeda's uh, Shura Majlis or its, its executive decision-making council. Um, that's that's uh, Sirajuddin Haqqani and all of his sons and uncles and cousins and, and extended family and, and others in the Haqqani clan. Uh, numerous are, are, are designated, I think I counted like 13 or 14 are designated specifically for their ties to Al-Qaeda, um, providing various levels of support, fundraising, recruiting, directing suicide bombers, running training camps. You know, it's hard to tell where the Haqqani network ends and the Taliban begins. Right. Can I add to that real quick? Yeah, just very briefly. I, I completely agree with Bill. No one's dug deeper on them than he has. But just, you know, uh, what I think listeners may want to know is that many of the most deadly attacks against American service members during their 20 years there came from the Haqqani network, including an attack that killed many service members in a, in a roadside attack in Kabul in 2010 when I was there. I would say that. And then also, you know, Bill said there in passing that he is the acting minister of interior. Well, what does the Ministry of Interior do? Interior do among other things, they issue passports. And in the agreement with the Taliban, in part two, one of the commitments the Taliban make what made was that they would not issue any passports to terrorist groups, Al Qaeda, and others. And now you have Siraj economy 
uh, Connie leading the department that actually does that. How many passports do we think he issued to people that probably wish ill on the United States? I, I, I don't want to know that answer, but I, I would be curious. Right, you can't, me, Bill, you can't Bill, trust Sirajah Connie. Who can you trust? What, well, speaking of that, you, you tweeted on this, but I, was it Sirajah Connie who was given space to publish an op-ed in the New York Times? Yes, he did. So there's been a, a, a common narrative that the Haqqanis really aren't part of the Taliban. They're a distinct entity. And the irony is, is the title is the op-ed is what we, comma, the Taliban, comma, want. <laughs> yes. um, I actually testified yeah. Yeah. in, in uh, federal court on a case where uh, service members who were killed, their family members or those who were wounded, sued Iran for their support. Um, yeah. for the Taliban. And we used that as direct evidence and the judge Bates found that to be very, very convincing. I mean, I laid the whole case out as to how the, um, the Haqqanis are actually the Taliban. And even the Haqqanis themselves say, say that we're Taliban. And this is where I sit there and say, where does Al Qaeda stop and, and the Taliban begin? And when you look at the Haqqanis, they're just the easiest one. They're the most obvious one. And they are, Brad is right. Look, they, they conducted some of the most heinous attacks, the assaults on the Serena Hotel and, and the assaults. They, they, they organized in Kabul what they was known as the Kabul Attack Network. It was amalgamation of the, the Taliban, um, the Al Qaeda, the Islamic movement, Uzbekistan, Hezbi Islami, Gulbuddin, um, and all these other groups, right? Um, and it was led by shock of shock of all shocks, one of Siraj Akhani's henchmen. Um, they, they, they are responsible for the deaths of, of hundreds, if not thousands, over a thousand American soldiers in Afghanistan. And I just have to, you know, I spent a, a lot of my career as a journalist with the New York Times. And I was, when Tom Cotton wrote an op-ed for the New York Times that some staff members found uh, objectionable, as I recall, at least two op-ed page editors lost their jobs my guess is, I'll bet at dinner, if you think I'm wrong, that no one's losing his job because they let a Haqqani have an op-ed space. That's okay, Tom Cotton, not so good. I, it's it's disgraceful. Look, I mean, they they did the Taliban. That op-eds like that, or that op-ed and other forms of Taliban propaganda helped the Taliban get that de- withdrawal deal and helped the Taliban take over the, the country. And you know, um, But hey, we, we have to have dissenting opinions in our, in our op-ed page. Unless it's Tom Cotton, an elected U.S. senator. And uh, let me say, also say, uh, look, on the one hand, I give President Biden credit for ordering this. He was asked, should we do this? He could have said no. He didn't. Full kudos. Great. But as you pointed out, Bill, we have to remember what this tells us, what you described about Al Qaeda and its relations with the Taliban. And remember that August 20th, 2021, right, just about a year ago, he said, what interest do we have in Afghanistan at this point with al-Qaeda gone? Now, there's two possibilities there. One is he wasn't acquainted with the intel. The other was that he was ignoring the intel and spitting out that because al-Qaeda gone, obviously not the case. Go ahead. To, yeah, Brad, I think you want to say a word. Yeah, no, th- I'm so glad you mentioned that quote of President Biden's. And, and, and just to be extra clear for listeners, that was not some one-off misstatement on his part. As Bill knows well, and Cliff, as you know well too, one of the fundamental arguments that President Biden himself and his administration used to justify what I would call the catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan was the idea that the al-Qaeda threat there had dissipated. The word you saw often was metastasis. That you know, it's like a cancer that spread elsewhere. But you know, it kind of Afghanistan, Pakistan is no longer the center of Al Qaeda global. It's no longer the beating heart and the mind of of the Islamist terrorist movement. So we can kind of leave there, do over the horizon stuff, and, and go focus elsewhere. Well, that was false in August 2021, and it's more false now, as evidenced by the fact that Zawahiri, when he decided he wanted a new uh, new vacation home, he went where? He went to Kabul, the capital uh, of. Afghanistan. And so it's just another major example of what H.R. McMaster and others have called self-delusion in Washington, where we tell ourselves and even more egregiously tell the American people things that should be are patently untrue to justify something that we want to do for other reasons. And uh, often we pay a very high price for it. And that. if I may add to that, um, and I could not agree with Brad anymore. And, and, and 
Brad, um, I think the least controversial thing said on the, today's podcast would be that the withdrawal was uh, catastrophic. It, it, I mean, I think that's you're putting it kindly. Um, it was an absolute disaster. And yeah, I could not agree with you more. The, the this this statement by President Biden, you know, just didn't come out of the blue. This this began over a decade ago. Once the decision to leave Afghanistan was made by the Biden administration, was picked up by the Trump administration. What you mean by no the? Uh, um, Obama I'm sorry, by the Obama administration, and yes. picked up by the Trump administration, carried out by and the Biden administration. Exactly. Once the decision to withdraw was made, uh, the die was cast, and this argument that Al Qaeda is, I call it the D words: decimated, done, defeated, degraded. These are all words that presidents have have stated. They had to make this argument in order to justify the withdrawal from Afghanistan because, and then the other one was the other, you know, big falsehood. I'll, I'll, I'll be, you know, I'll dumb it or I'll be kind and not say lie was that the Taliban and Al Qaeda aren't, there's the relationship is weak, right? Or so we, it, we couldn't leave Afghanistan if Al Qaeda was strong there, if it was based there. And we can't leave Afghanistan and abandon it to the Taliban if Al Qaeda and the Taliban are still joined at the hip. These are the two lies that were told by subsequent, uh, by successive inf- administrations in order to justify withdrawal. This is exactly what Brad's talking about, the, the self-deception. Um, and it, when you do this over time, I, you know, I don't know what's worse. Did they, did, did they, President Biden and President Trump and, and President Obama not know about this or did they know? And, um, and, and were deceptive, right? So we, were they either ignorant or, or were they being duplicitous? Let, I don't, I don't know which is worse. Um, the, but neither are good. I know that. Let me ask this is a hard question, but let's, uh, and I'll ask you to do it as briefly as you can, just because there's a lot of other things I want to touch on here. And that's just if you decided whether you're Obama or Biden or Trump, okay, I want to get out of Afghanistan. Is there a responsible way to do it? And the kind of thing that occurs to me is you could say, well, we need to wean the Afghan um, military f- and security forces off of their de- so much dependence on the U.S. That's not going to be easy. That'll take a few years. We probably have to leave a residual force in there. And there are certain things we're going to have to do for them for a long time because they're because you can't try. Don't forget, you can't change. It takes 20 years to train a general. Right. So how much, there's only so much you can do. So we'll need contractors to, on the helicopters. We'll need some intelligence. Probably a bit. Is there a way you could do it? And could you do it in less than three years? I'm, I'm guessing here if you said, OK, it, it is what we want to do. We want to, for all intents and purposes, leave, be able to say this is just a, and a training and advice mission inside of three years and not do what we did, which is cut off the military, leave them feeling we cannot possibly carry out our mission without the U.S. and we're going to fall apart. And every, you know, in other words, not simply abandoning them to their fate. Brad, why don't you start your, mil, you know, your long-term military guy and West Point guy? Oh, thanks, Cliff. I, you know, I, I, I think there, we can certainly say there would have been a more responsible way to leave Afghanistan. I, when I say catastrophe, and, and I agree with Bill Stronger, words could be used. I, I, I mean a catastrophe in, in terms of the policy decision. And I also mean a catastrophe in terms of implementation. And those are two different things. Yes, and I think, of, I, I think of the Iraq withdrawal in 2011. Mm-hmm. That was a policy strategic disaster, in my opinion, that was implemented in a beautiful operational way. So, so, so Biden talks about then General Austin implementing a beautiful withdrawal from Iraq in 2011. Yeah, tactically, operationally, very nicely done. Strategically, disaster because it created a series of events that resulted in the rise of the ISIS caliphate, and we had to go back in 2014 at a higher cost. Um, with Afghanistan, it was both a strategic and uh, operational disaster, and I think there's lots and lots of blame to go around for that. But what would have a more responsible uh, policy decision looked like? I think it would have started. You know, I, I'm a little old-fashioned, naive, with telling people the truth. And what the truth it would be? Hey, you know what? We've done some damage against Al Qaeda, but they're still there. They're stronger than we want. Um, you know, we are have concerns, but we're going to try to do the best we can over the horizon. We know that with over the horizon, you're going to have less knowledge about what the bad guys are doing, and we know that you're going to be less agile in responding. But we're willing to take that risk and mitigate that risk 
because we don't want to risk the lives of maintaining two to 4,000 troops there. Inevitably, some of them will be killed. That, of course, yeah, yeah, sorry. No, I got to say two to 4,000 troops. I mean, I don't think people understand how few troops that is compared to the troops we have in many places in the world. Of course, we still have troops in Europe a long time after World War II. We still have 28,000 troops in South Korea a long time after the Korean War did not ended, but last, but was is halted in an armistice. We have we have troops in Africa. We have troops in a lot of places, and those troops are there because they maintain stability, because they keep the conflicts from from going out of control. A lot of good reasons that I think, again, if you're an isolationist, you don't, but I think where we have troops, they do a good job just being there. And go ahead, Brad, I'm sorry. No, you're no, no, you're, I'm so glad you interjected that because I believe you're exactly right. And that was the fundamental argument of, of FDD's December, 2020 defending board monograph, which where we took on the whole endless war narrative in in section one, where you had a great chapter there, Cliff. And then we looked at the three respective geography, uh, geographic areas, and then concluded, but exactly it's, you know, we maintain a forward presence because we get not because we're we're charitable or we don't want to help out ungrateful you know partners and allies who aren't pulling their fair share, but because it is in our interest to do so. Because we learn things about what the bad guys are doing, we like a canary in a coal mine. We get early warning. We help build up the capabilities of our allies and partners over time that uh, will reduce the burden on us. Uh, and once the shooting starts against a peer or near peer adversary, like in China, you can't assume that you'll be able to get there once the conflict starts. And so it's better to be there from the beginning. So there's all kinds of reasons, but, um, you know, this, this, um, to me, you know, Bill Bill's piece that he just published in the last 24 hours is just excellent. I encourage everyone to listen to it. This is going to be cited as evidence, as he argues so well, that over the horizon works. But in reality, I think the fact that Zawahiri was there in Kabul and uh, is is evidence uh, that it doesn't work. And if someone thinks that one strike, yeah, an important strike, yes, credit to Biden, as you said, Cliff. But if someone thinks that Zawahiri is the only Al-Qaeda member that's come to Afghanistan or to Kabul since we left their naive, and if you think one strike in 11 months is going to have them so worried that they don't have time to plan and plot attacks against us, I think that person would be a little naive. Is it the opposite in the sense that if you're one of out, and we'll talk about who's next in line for Zawari's job, but who you know who who, get, who gets that uh, the corner office? But the my but whoever you are, do you think okay? We now have to take revenge on America for what they've just done to one of our heroes. They've martyred him, and that's wonderful that he's a martyr. When we were proud of that, but we have to show we're still relevant. Is should we be? If you're in the intelligence community, if you're at the Pentagon. Are you saying we better watch carefully because something's going to happen if they can, if they have the capability? I would have been saying that the day before the strike because I wouldn't have been under, and I'm not suggesting you were, but you know, I wouldn't have been under the presumption that Al Qaeda decided to give up its uh, terrorism life and is playing shuffleboard and croquet instead. Because you know, and and, and this goes to what you know, HR often talks about with. Uh, you know, strategic narcissism, where we think everything is a reaction to us. I believe that Al-Qaeda's fundamental purpose is to get the U.S. out of the Middle East so that it can have its way in that region and, and, and establish totalitarian uh, regimes. And they know that they can't do that if they don't get the U.S. out of the region. And so they were wanting to kill us before the Zawahiri strike. They want to kill us now. Uh, and if we think anything has dramatically changed before or after that, I think uh, I think we don't understand our enemy, the kind of people, like Bill said earlier, that would be wealthy, like Osama bin Laden or Ayman al-Zawahiri, who would give up that wealth and live in caves and have to keep watching the skies for fear of a hellfire missile because they're such true believers in their desire to kill us and our allies. Well, let me just play devil's advocate here. Both of you can respond to this. Is somebody might say to you, okay, Brad, you're saying they want us out of the region. They think it's their region. You know what? It kind of is their region. Why don't we get out of their hair? Stop poking the hornet's nest. If we go back, they don't care what we do in Berkeley, California. They don't care what we do in Massachusetts. Just get the hell out of there and we're safe. Isn't Now it's over, right? 
I would say wrong. Well, first of all, as Bill knows well, and Cliff, you're a student of history too, what they would define as their region was not the Arabian Peninsula. It's the maximum, if you look at the early writings and and, and words of Al-Qaeda leaders, their region, quote unquote, uh, basically goes from Indonesia to Spain. (laughs) And and I would say, by the way, beyond that, their their priority is any region ever conquered by a Muslim army. That's what I mean. But but they have a global vision because jihad doesn't end until Sharia law is applied everywhere on earth. Everywhere on earth, the unbelievers are defeated and accept Islam as they as they interpret Islam. Right. I think that's just an important point to point out because the isolation is too, totally yeah. don't get them. Yeah. And if you don't believe what they believe uh, and live accordingly, then you're takfiri and you deserve to be killed. Uh, and takfiri, I should say, that applies only to Muslims, right? The, the, right. The, 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 right. The takfiri idea well, is one thing the individual, but if you're a, say, you know, you're, if you're a moderate Muslim, says, you know what, we can get along with Christians and Jews and even Baha'i and oh, Druze. Really, why is it that they would say, no, no, you don't understand Islam properly. Therefore, you are either a heretic or an apostate, and we hate you, and we will kill you just the same. I just want to make that clear because we, we see lots of arguments and a lot of money spent uh, on I'm that. Sure, argument. yes. If, if I may make two very yeah. brief points here. Yeah, Brad's, again, absolutely right. I'm going to say that probably the rest of the episode. Um, the Al-Qaeda's goal isn't to kill americans it's terrorism is merely a tactic to help it achieve its goal which is to establish the global caliphate it does that by building emirate by emirate it has an islamic emirate now in afghanistan which calls itself by the way the islamic emirate of afghanistan so that's what we should fear what comes with that with their 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 goal is every is the results of that killing Americans to drive us out of the region, p- packing us here at home to make us weak, att- attacking our allies, um, be they Muslim nations or, or or Western nations. I mean, look so the, the the fighting that we're seeing in Africa and in the Sahel and in mm-hmm. West Africa that wasn't part of any caliphate, and yet Al Qaeda wants that. They want it. They want it all. They're just, you know, um, and they've been very clear about this. And now I want to get back to uh, just to make a quick point on the withdrawal, what we could have done. Um, you know, I agree. And again, agree with Brad. We needed to be honest with the American people and, and be very clear about the risks. Instead, we tried to pretend it was something that it wasn't. I am. I understand the desire of Americans to get out of Afghanistan. It's been a mess for it was a mess for 20 years of policy. We did a lot of things wrong. I, we spent a lot of blood, a lot of treasure there. I get that. But if you wanted to leave, if you do want to make the decision to leave, you needed to leave something behind that was sustainable. And Cliff, you, I think you hit on it, right? We, we, we do this slowly. We make it very clear to the Afghans that they're taking over. We get, we enable them to do certain things. There was another thing that the um, Afghan government had to do and it was never willing to do. Uh, and that was it needed to consolidate its lines. The Taliban, and this is the reason I created that map of Afghanistan that was on the news all last year. Uh, and I started mm-hmm. it in 2014 or 15 because I recognized the flaw in the, in the counterinsurgency strategy. We ceded the rural areas to the Taliban and said, we'll defend the urban areas because that's what matters. The Taliban, and I know this from reading the, with their interviews of their military and political leaders in English, by the way, it didn't take much of an effort to do. Um, they would tell us, that's fine. Uh, we'll meet you in the cities. And that's literally what mm. happened here. By the end of this, by 2000, by, by the time President Biden makes the announcement, large areas of Afghanistan were either Taliban controlled or contested to the point that the government wasn't going to be, the Afghan government wasn't going to be reclaim them. The Afghan government needed to consolidate its lines. It needed to abandon areas in the south and the east of the Taliban. Very distasteful. Um, we need uh, the Taliban was gaining in the north and the northwest where all the power brokers for the Afghan government, you know, the former Mujahideen or the former what they call warlords where they operated. They needed time. They needed to take some of those areas out back because Taliban slash Al Qaeda made significant gains there. We needed to give one when I would talk to um, Afghan diplomats, military members um and advisors to ministerial advisors to defense and to, to interior and to even to the president i would to a man say well, the us is going to leave this is when but even before president biden was elected i was like hey, the writing's on the wall you guys need to figure out this thing on your on your own you need to 
You need to figure out what you we can hold and you can't hold. You need to organize, you know, whether whatever that is, a rump Afghan government, Northern Alliance 2.0. And to a man, they would tell me this. And they told me this to the very even again before the withdrawal was announced, immediately after, and even in the last month when the US was leaving and almost all its troops were gone, to a man, they were not mentally prepared for what what was to come. And what they would tell me was. Oh, Bill, I've been assured by the State Department. I've been assured by defense. I've been assured by ministry, uh, the CIA. I've been assured by administration officials that ultimately the U.S. wouldn't leave, that we would be there for them. We All never, right. we ne- they never internalized the issue, even as it was happening, even as the U.S. closed down Bagram Air Base, they thought that we were going to be there. And so the speed that we did that withdrawal that was literally pulling the rug out from the afghans we set up a military that was reliant on um u.s tactics of using air power and air support medevac things like that the maintenance for those aircrafts u.s armaments um isr and um intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance support and once we shut down those that support the afghan military couldn't function because that's how we taught him how to function and, you know, one of the, to me, and uh, sorry, I probably went a little longer here than I had hoped. It the mo- one of the most disgraceful things that I, I that I saw, um, that I heard a president say in my life was when President Biden accused the, or said the Afghan military wouldn't fight. It's not that they wouldn't fight. It's that the, you, we, we yanked the rug out from them even before the withdrawal was announced with the deal with the Taliban, with, how we, you know, how again, how we built the built their military, how we we set them up for failure. Um, look, the Afghans deserve a lot of blame for this as well. They didn't recognize what was happening, but to withdraw, and the Afghan government was never, and the military was never going to be able to reorganize in in the three months that it, since the withdrawal was announced. Right, right. Uh, Brad, if you want to come in on that again, I'll, I'll let you. I've got two more questions after that. Although I do also wanted to mention. But we talked about just for a second, Bagram Air Base. What a tremendous asset that would have been for a for a generation for the U.S. in the Indo-Pacific, which is a rather high priority area for us for a lot of reasons in terms of national security and defense. And we had this unbelievable asset. You can't replicate it. We just threw it away along with billions, billions uh, of dollars of military equipment that we just left behind because we were in such a rush to do it by a deadline that was imposed by, by the, because of the 20th anniversary of the, uh, uh, of the, uh, of, of nine, of nine 11. I, I think that was an odd, anyhow, I'm not going to, I don't, I don't want to go on about that, but I'll just, I just threw that out to you, Brad, before I ask my last two questions. <laughs> yeah, I'll be very quick. Just a uh, quick smorgasbord of things based on Bill's excellent comments. Um, just, yeah, I mean, there, one could write a book and there will be many books written on all the reasons why there was a failure in Afghanistan. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 I think a theme here is that it was a bipartisan failure. So anyone listening to this conversation looking to put all the blame on Biden or all the blame on Trump or all the blame on Obama, I think that's not what the facts suggest. The facts are this was a bipartisan failure over several administrations with common mistakes made across all those administrations. One of the mistakes, you know, FDD, Cliff, as you know, hosted a great event a few weeks back on Michael Gordon's new Mm -hmm. book about how we defeated the ISIS caliphate. And one of the things that came out in that conversation, which I was honored to moderate, was that we decided when we were fighting ISIS in Iraq that we were not going to give that terrorist organization a safe haven in Syria. Yet, as Bill knows well, and Cliff, as you know, we gave the Taliban, we granted them, we permitted them to have a safe haven in Pakistan. Uh, And I think if you're going to make a short list of reasons for failure, a top five, top 10 reasons for failure in Afghanistan, I would put the Taliban's safe haven in Pakistan on that list. One, two, very quickly, the, I I don't think it's difficult to measure, but some things are true and difficult to measure. and, And here's one. I don't think you can overestimate the the negative impact on U.S. national security interests that came from the catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan, from the images of aircraft leaving and Afghans clinging to the uh, to, to the aircraft as it, as it taxis down the runway. Uh, you know, I, I, for one, don't think, I can't prove it, but I don't think it's a coincidence that Putin's 
invasion, February 24th invasion of Ukraine came a short time, a few months after that withdrawal, because it may have left him with him. He may have done it anyways, but it certainly left him with the impression that America lacked the will, the fortitude, the determination to affect, uh, to defend its national security interests. And of course, uh, Beijing was watching as well, as were all other, other American adversaries. And it sent the message that uh, we weren't willing to do what was necessary to defend our interest. I, I believe. And one, I just want to quibble with you on one point. I'm going to have Mar- we're going to have Michael Gordon on uh, on a podcast soon. Uh, when we, yeah. But when people hear that uh, the Islamic State was defeated, I would say decimated, deprived of territory, a lot of other things. It still exists. And the reason I say it is because uh, I know you know this is you can't simply state mission accomplished. It's no no more forever war. Now we have forever peace. You have Some of these villains you have to suppress on a very permanent basis. That's inconvenient. That's unpleasant. But it's reality in this world. It's not that, okay, it's done. Let's have a ticker tape parade and move on. Um, that's not the real world. And it's not the world we live in now. Can I quibble with your quibble? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I'll it's very, it's a dangerous business quibbling with your boss, but I, I'm, I'm going to try. Okay. All right. So I, I'll have to go back and check the tape. I think I said defeat of the ISIS caliphate, okay. which, I, which, I, which I stand by. And that's fine. I, 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 well, that's another right. way that this is often put is physical that, that, That's the title, right? just respectfully pushing back. That's the title. It's subtitled Michael Gordon's okay. book, because we did in fact defeat the ISIS caliphate. What your point, which is also true, is that we did not defeat the terrorist organization, much less the ideology. And that's the difference. When you talk about a caliphate or, or quasi-state versus a terrorist organization versus an ideology, this stuff's never sadly going to go away. We're going to have to manage it. But there's a big difference between owning territory and being able to impose taxes and raise revenue and export oil <laughs> versus being a terrorist organization doing IED. Attacks. 100% right. I just wanted to make sure the yeah. audience under... <laughs> that was a respectful quibble with your quibble. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. To repeat this, it's often described as we defeated the ISIS's physical caliphate, right? It's yeah. it's yeah. state, right? But not the group itself. Uh, real quick point on Bagram. Um, the Taliban weren't the only ones ha- happy that the U.S. left Bagram, abandoned Bagram. The Chinese are happy. The Iranians yep. are happy. Yep. Yep. The Russians are happy. Yep. The Pakistanis are happy. Um, the, we, the U.S. lost the ability, lost a window. And look, the reason to stay in Afghanistan was not to maintain a base in Bagram, but it was an added benefit that the U.S. had a window right. into Central Asia um, by maintaining that base. It's a big reason why the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, and the Pakistanis wanted us out. Good. No, that very, very important point. Yes, I was trying to. I was trying to argue that there are there was absolute self interest as well as morality involved here, and I wanted to get that across. Okay, do we. I want to let I let you guys go to pretty soon, but two more questions. One, so there's a job opening, president and CEO of Al Qaeda. The name I've heard is Safe Al Adel. If that's the most likely candidate, I'm not sure it is. Bill, you'll tell me. What do we know about him? Does he like pina coladas and walks in the rain? What else can you tell us? Yeah, he is a another jihadist who's been in the business for since the 1980s. Egyptian, also right. Egyptian. Yeah. Member started with the Egyptian Islamic Jihad along with the uh, with the uh, Zawahiri. Um, he was a military officer. I believe he was a colonel in the Egyptian mm-hmm. military. Yeah, yeah. Started out with um, advising terrorists on how to build bombs and military tactics. Um, rose through the ranks, involved in, uh, again, he was involved in the Kenyan Tanzania bombings. He, oh, another fun fact about my our friend Saif al uh trained by Iran and Hezbollah in, uh-huh. Uh-huh. in order uh-huh. to, in, in order to um, use Hezbollah style of tactics. This is where Al Qaeda learned it. Look, I'm not making this up. This is the 9 11 Commission report. It's, you know. Okay. I'm going to open this up because that is my last question. And you can. Oh, well, okay. You want to. I'll I'll table discussion on that part of it then. Okay. Well, you can finish up on him. But my last question, my exit question is to to talk about Al Qaeda relations with Iran's revolutionary mullahs, which is something not well understood that you've been trying to explain to people for years, Bill, I know. So let's talk about Al Qaeda going forward and and its relations with the revolutionaries of Iran. And let me briefly finish up on on Saif al-Adil, right? He rose through the embassy bombings. It's said that he disagreed with al-Qaeda's decision to do 9-11. 
Well, mm. he was in a senior position regardless. He very likely was, even if you didn't agree, he probably was likely involved in the planning and execution of that attack. Uh, military leader of Al-Qaeda, sheltered in Iran, right? Mm. Um, when people say, oh, we've killed all Al-Qaeda's leaders, the old guard. Well, Saif al-Edo is old guard of Al-Qaeda. He's, he's known to be sheltered in Iran, um, plotted terror attacks against Saudi Arabia there. He's an old head. Um, he just doesn't happen to have the name of Osama bin Laden or Zawahiri or, or Zarqawi or some of the, you know, just because they're not household main names doesn't make him any da- more, less dangerous. For instance, uh, Abu Muhammad al-Masri, who the, um, the Israelis are said to have killed also in Tehran. Um, mm-hmm. he was probably next in line. Um, he said in Saif al-Aidal, it was thought either one of them could have taken control of, of, of al-Qaeda. The Iranians killed him, what, uh, two or three years ago. Um, and you know, nobody knew who he was. He's wanted, he had a wanted poster, but he wasn't a household name. Didn't make him any, these, these, as a matter of fact, these are the guys who I fear the most, the ones that we don't, we don't see on a daily basis because they're the ones that are doing things in the background. Now to your, to your point on the IRGC, uh, or Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and Quds Force relationship with Al Qaeda, this is Something that is well documented and do- denied to this day. It's, it's one of these very frustrating things that I have to deal with in my work. Um, it's, you know, and, and we talk about the bipartisan, bipartisan failures of Afghanistan. Well, the designations of Iran, um, and its support for Al Qaeda are bar- bipartisan successes. They started under the Bush administration. They continue really the, the, the significant designations took place under the Obama administration, where it was outlined literally, this is a quote from the designation, a secret deal between Iran and Al Qaeda. Um, the uh, Al Qaeda used Iran as a facilitation network, um, to, to move fighters, to move money, to, um, back and forth uh, across the theater. We know pre 9 11 that Al- many of the hijackers traveled through Iran. Um, and I believe some of them even got Iranian passports. Uh, th- this mm-hmm. is a, this is a really, you know, we talked about Saif al and how he was trained by Hezbollah in order to carry, carry this is how the, the 1998 Kenyan Tanzania bombings. This is all, you know, again, this isn't like some speculation. The court cases have proved this. Um, and recently in that case that I was describing with in Cabrera v. Iran, we, uh, uh, Judge Bates agreed with us that there were in Afghanistan, there was what we called the Taliban al-Qaeda syndicate, which was supported directly by the Iranians. Remember, I talked about the um, that Kabul attack network, which was led by a Haqqani leader, where most of the heinous attacks in and around Kabul were were executed, um, or they were the group that were responsible for these attacks. Uh, we found the the IRGC IRGC was supporting a guy who I knew about who I've been tracking for well over a decade. His name is Kari Bariel. And then I see in intelligence reports that are that we got declassified that were saying Kari Bariel was provi- was given money. And again, he ran this this Kabul attack network cell in the heart of Kabul by the by the Iranians. The the evidence for the the support for um the Iranian support for Al Qaeda in, in in Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, in other play, you know, sheltering Al Qaeda leaders after 9-11. It's overwhelming. And yet people want to continue with the tired narrative. I get tired of these tired narratives. And one of them is, well, Sunnis and Shia could never cooperate. Um, they are too ideologically different. Well, maybe they might if they have a shared enemy. Um, in the case of Afghanistan, it was simple. The, uh, the Iranians wanted the U.S. to leave. This gets back to the Iranians were very happy that the U.S. left Bagram. They feared the U.S. presence on its, on its border of Af- both Af- And that's why they did the same thing in Iraq. But in, in Afghanistan, the Iranians didn't have Shia groups like they did that existed in Iraq. There was no Shia opposition to the U.S. So they took the next best thing. They work with the Taliban. The Taliban gladly support, uh, took the support. We documented in that case that, uh, in Cabrera, uh, we documented that Iran was providing safe haven, money, weapons, and training both inside Iran as well as inside of Afghanistan for the Taliban, what we called the Taliban syndicate. That included, of course, the Taliban, including the Haqqani Network, Al-Qaeda, uh, Hezbollah Islami Gulbuddin, all these other groups that, that were this 
um, alphabet soup of terror groups that were operating to defeat us in the United States. The Iranians played a, a key role in that. And this is sort of one of those ignored stories about Iran, because as soon as you say this, uh, Cliff, it, it, people are like, well, that means you want war with Iran. And I said, no, what I'd like to do is document the truth. Like I'm like, Brad, I'm old fashioned here. I care about the truth. How can we make rational policy if we refuse to accept the truth? We didn't make rational policy in Afghanistan because we refused to accept the truth about our enemies. And that what number one was that the Taliban Al-Qaeda alliance um, endured, that it was stronger than it was it was stated. And how can we how can we properly make how can we cut a deal, a nuclear deal with Iran as it's supporting multiple terror networks that are responsible for the death of thousands of Americans that sabotage American policy throughout the world? It's madness. A nuclear deal that will shower the Islamic Republic of Iran with billions of dollars that they could use for any purposes whatsoever in return for a promise that they will delay, not end, their nuclear weapons program whose existence they have never acknowledged. That's my last point for today. Brad, if you want to make a last point, do, and Bill, if you want to as well. Um, because we've gone over, but I think it's, it's been, I think we've, we've talked about a lot of things that I, I really wanted us to touch on today. Go ahead, Brad. Thank you, Cliff, for the opportunity. Thank, uh, thank you, Bill. I really enjoyed it. And, and, um, Bill, I just really respect the work that you've done for years on this thing. And, and, um, yeah, I guess my parting thought will sound kind of pedantic, I guess, but just, you know, the, the theme here is begin with the truth, you know, begin with the truth. And what we've been do- talking about here is what is the truth as we see it as best as we can see it in Afghanistan. And that truth is that Al Qaeda and Taliban never broke. They remain attached at the hip and Afghanistan, as we speak today is governed by the Taliban and is an Al Qaeda safe haven. And one strike on Zawahiri is not going to change that. That's the truth. The other truth is that the Islamic Republic of Iran the Shia Islamic Republic of Iran is happy to work with Sunni terrorists and Sunni terrorist groups if that enables them to kill Americans, Israelis, and others. They've done they've done that in the example uh, that Bill just cited, and they of course also do it with Hamas and others. And so those are just two truths that I think we should begin with to inform better policy going forward. Yeah, and, and you know I I echo that. I'm not I'm not going to expound on that any further. Brad put it very well. And Brad and Cliff, thank you very much for taking the time. And Cliff, I, we could do this all night long. That's up to you, but I do appreciate you know running a podcast myself. I understand that we don't want to we don't want to keep the the listeners up all night. You know, we get, well, a, I, get a car ride out of it, right? And I've got cock- cocktails waiting for yes, me. So, yes. But Generation Jihad is your podcast. Listeners, you want to go over and listen to his podcast as well. You want to subscribe to Generation Jihad. You want to subscribe to this podcast. You want to rate. You want to review. You want to uh, be in touch with us with any suggestions. Thanks for all of you for listening. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Bill. We'll talk to you next time here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.